the tree, but the tree was a cross. And he turned, when he climbed that tree, and he turned that cross from an instrument of torture and death into an instrument of life. There's an instrument of life for everybody but himself. Man stole the fruit, but I must climb the tree. And when Christ cried out, let this cup pass from me to his father, God said no. And the reason he did was because this was a tree of life that Christ was about to inaugurate for us all, if you're a believer. It was a tree of life for everybody but himself. So who, who was this one? The short answer is, is it's Jesus Christ. That's the short answer. But the long answer is the book of John, right? We're not going to go through the whole book of John. Understand, you went through the whole book of John. So you were kind of John the Baptist preparing the way for this. I appreciate that. Um, and the reason we're looking at John is that it is the most comprehensive answer to the most important question in all of history. Who is Jesus Christ? Now, how can I say that? How can I get away with saying who is Jesus Christ is the most important uh, question in all of history, the most central question in all of the world. You might say that that's not it. It might be something with molecular physics. It might be something with uh, uh, ontology, um, epistemology of knowing and being. But I, I think that question relates to uh, all of those questions. Now, I'm not asking sociologically that there's probably, what, two billion Christians, people who name the name of Christ, between uh, Catholics and Protestants, and it's the most important to figure out the world. I'm asking the question based upon this. If you were to take a poll, and they've taken several polls, um, from learned men, which is a very ambiguous term, uh, who are four people on your list you would like to know more about, like to meet, like to know? It's always usually about the, four, the same four answers. Jesus Christ, Buddha, Mohammed, and Karl Marx. Same four people. Now, of those four, only one claims to be God. How does Jesus get away with that? Now, atheists today, uh, people who are skeptical, uh, comparative religions, they'll say he was a good teacher. But he doesn't really give me that option. He doesn't, right? Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You know, before Abraham was, I am. He refers to himself in ways that, <clears throat> if you don't just have a cursory view of the Bible, you think that guy's claiming to be God. And in any other person in history who claims to be God, we consider them to be crackpots, crazy, right? They're in insane asylums. How does Jesus get away with that? How does Jesus get away with that? Looking for my water here. How could he make those claims? So a reasonable person cannot go about life and make a philosophy of life without first considering who is Jesus Christ? Are, are, are there, is there any truth to his claims? Are they a sham to honestly evaluate them? And where do we go? We go to the Gospel of John. Why? Because John had a very special relationship to Jesus. He was his best friend. And this is a man who at parties would recline into Jesus, you know, that, that a close relationship and then would say, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is God. That's a really unique situation. So in the early church, whenever the uh, different gospel writers are depicted uh, in stained glass in churches, it's really beautiful how they tell stories with, uh, through stained glass. John is always depicted as an eagle. Always depicted as an eagle. Um, and one of the theories as to why that's true is because an eagle is one of the few birds that can fly into the sun. 
It's one of the few birds that can gaze into the power and the beauty and the glory of the sun and not be phased by it. And as a result, we say the same thing about John because John is someone that can get us to look straight into the matchless majesty of who Jesus Christ is. He's an eagle being able to show us the sun. And if that story is true, Jesus is God and creator. Your life, my life, everything hinges on the answer. And John gives us the answer. Now, John in the first few verses gives us astonishing claims about his best friend, right? And one of the astonishing, uh, astonishing things about Jesus' majesty is that you can have someone, on the one hand, like John, who, who hangs out with them, goes to a party, is with him behind the scenes, and then later when Jesus dies and raises again, calls him the Logos, the divine Logos. Why is that important? Part of that's why it's important is um, we get infatuated with people, right? Uh, Steve Jobs, people that had vigils for him when he died. Um, but I know people in Raleigh-Durham where I live who had friends who worked at Apple and they were like, man, he's a really contentious person. And behind the scenes, he's actually not the cool, calm guy you would think he is. He drives people, he's mean, he's cutthroat. Um, they worked there in the early 90s, late 80s. I think people had that idea about him. And then he reinvented himself in the mid-90s, came back in the early 2000s. And my generation, younger generation thinks, man, Steve Jobs is a cool guy. He was probably just messing around. But deep down, behind the scenes, he was actually a really contentious, arrogant person. Um, now, that's not, I say that not to run down Steve Jobs. I say it to say that we know a lot of people like that, who are one way in front of people, another way behind the scenes, right? Uh, unfortunately, a lot of pastors are like that. A lot of pastors' wives are like, he's not like that in front or he's not like that behind the scenes in the way he'd be in front of people. And so we invent ourselves. Facebook is a great way to do this, by the way, right? I, maybe I talked about this last time. It's like I, I throw up the life I want to have. I get jealous about the life people market themselves to have. And then it's just an endless cycle of, of, of jealousy and envy. And it's like, oh, man, greatest thing in the world happened. Let me Facebook it. It's like, no one ever Facebooks the worst thing in the world. Um, so... Uh, John gets this front of the view of Christ. He gets the behind the scenes. So he's there when Jesus is breaking the bread, multiplying the bread, raising people from the dead. And then he's behind the scenes when Jesus is retreating. He's there when Jesus hits his hand with a nail. Probably didn't because he was a carpenter. He was really good with that. But he, he, was, there when, he was there when Jesus was tired, right? And people get, get grouchy. And it's like, man, Jesus is not responding in the way everybody else is. And so later, Jesus dies, resurrected, is away, and John says, not only was he just a good friend, he was God. He was God. He was the Logos. Now, all we're going to do this morning is look at two meanings of what it means for Christ to be the Logos. Jesus is the Logos. Uh, if you're writing down, you can write down the two points. It's the same right here. Um, I found that's the easiest way, since I don't have notes like my dad. Just tell you what the notes are. Uh, Jesus Christ is the rationale for life. That's the first one we're going to deal with. Jesus Christ is the rationale for life. And the second is, Jesus is the authority of life. Jesus is the authority of life. So Jesus is the rationale for life, and then Jesus is the authority for life. So unlike Buddha, Muhammad, Marx, none of them claim to be the rationale for life. They claim to give good advice. They claim to give uh, to point to God, right, like Muhammad. Uh, Marx and Buddha claim to give great advice of how to live. Um, 
But it's a serious claim to say, I am the rationale for life. I am the truth. That is serious. It's so serious, in fact, that if, um, if you were a theist uh, like Muhammad, if he heard someone like Jesus make that claim, or John even make that claim about Jesus, if Muhammad would pluck out his beard, take your head off, and, 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 and be very upset that you would claim to be that. I mean, that is, um, it, it, it's, uh, it's so ridiculous to make such a claim. And yet John accepted this claim from his own best friend. What does it mean? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Jesus is the divine Lagos. Now, that's a loaded term back then. In today's culture, we debate terms like, we don't even really debate them. It's just, these are the virtues, toleration, acceptance. Talk about what is marriage now. Those, those are the new virtues in our culture. Toleration, acceptance, um, equality, no matter what it means for everybody. But back then, Logos was a greatly debated issue. That was a greatly, that was the pop culture issue of the day. What is the Logos? It, it was a philosophical term. It was a loaded term. And John knew exactly what he was saying when he said it. Um, now, what a Logos means, it can be translated as logic, right? If some of you in college took a logic class. Probably most of you hated it. Um, it so we're not talking about logic from a book uh, that logicians would talk about. Instead, what we're talking about that the Greeks debated was, what is the reason for life? What is my purpose? What is my reason? That is what logos was. What is my purpose? Why am I here? The, the Greeks debated at a philosophical level what every person is thinking at a personal level. What am I living for? What is my life for? What is it? That's what a logos is. What is my purpose? It's, it's existential questions about my being, my person, my purpose. Now, if you went to your buddy's house, right, and you walked in, and they had a brand new iPod. Uh, let's say that the, the box was on the table. Uh, good battery, great screen. Uh, man, it looked really nice. And then he had it as a doorstop in his bedroom. Uh, you would probably draw, draw two conclusions, right? First conclusion would be that iPad is not being used to its full potential and capability, right? Right, yeah, yeah, okay. Second, you would realize the owner of the iPad is not recognizing the full potential of the iPad because the owner did not understand the logos, right? You'd say, dude, I'll trade you a brick for that iPad. You know, that would be the greatest deal in the world. You, the brick is used for that, an iPad is not used for that, right? You, so you start to begin to ask, what is the principle of existence what is the logos? What is it for? Or suppose you saw somebody when we left church, somebody left 15 minutes early, heated up their car, opened the hood, and threw a steak on the engine block and started cooking it, right? You'd walk out and be like, that guy's crazy. Why? Why would you think that? Well, first of all, the food will probably taste poorly, right? Probably. Maybe some of you would not think so. And second, it's a dangerous thing to do. You shouldn't be cooking on an engine. Well, why is it bad? Because the person doing it doesn't understand the logos or function for an engine block or a good steak. Doesn't understand the purpose of a good grill. He doesn't understand the principle of existence for those things. What is the engine for? And until you understand what the iPad is for and what the engine is for, you cannot realize the potential. And it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing. You can get hurt. Same thing, chemicals, right? You have Mr. Yuck stickers for children underneath the sink. That taught me in a lot of ways. My, I heard a story, 
I don't know if I want to tell you the story, but I heard a story uh, two weeks ago when my aunt was in town, or a month ago when my aunt was in town. My mom, when she was home alone with her sisters, was going to feed her sisters Clorox that she found underneath the sink as like a game they were playing, but she didn't know it was poisonous. She wasn't trying to. But her mom came home in time and cleaned it all up. Is that right? Stopped it. Okay. So um, my mom almost eliminated her sisters through the use of Clorox when she was younger, didn't know what it was, trying to be teacher of the house with the little sister. But you understand, that's a very dangerous thing. The existence for Clorox is not to drink, right? It's to clean. So the Logos is very important, especially in that situation. And now you see why the Greeks debated to find the Logos of life. What is the purpose? Because you see, if you understand what life is for, if you can understand what we are here for, if you can understand that theory of existence and bring your life into conformity with it, we would realize our potential. Like the iPad, when a human being finds their potential, we, we, we erupt with life. We become everything we can be. And everyone wanted to know what the Logos was. But by the time Jesus uh, was, was around, uh, it was about 500 years before Christ, they started to debate what the Logos was. So hundreds of years are going around. And now the schools, the philosophical schools in Greece are fractured. And they began to say, maybe there is no Logos. Maybe there is no reason. Maybe there is no significance. And, th- and this was so because no one could find it. No one could agree on what it was. And by the time Jesus had come along, the schools had gotten to a place where they said, maybe there is no truth. Maybe there is no logos. Now, that's the ancient version, to say there's no logos. That is the equivalent of saying, I guess there just aren't any answers. And now anybody who says there aren't any answers and who says there is no logos, you have to recognize that if you're sane, if you have a brain, and they say that, you realize no one can say such a thing with just a shrug, right? Maybe there are no answers. Maybe there is no truth. Maybe there's no significance. You can't say that and understand the significance of a statement like that and say it with a shrug. Now, I've seen people say, ah, maybe there just aren't any answers. What is right and wrong? What am I living for? But anyone who says it with a shrug doesn't really know what you're saying. The Greeks knew what they were saying. Uh, Nietzsche certainly knew what he was saying when he said it. When he said there are really no answers, what you're really saying is there's no way to define anything. There's no way or no reason to get up in the morning. Why go on living? Why be kind to your neighbor? Right? Why make a contribution to society? Why? Who is to say there are are even good values? These are the inevitable questions. These are questions high school kids ask, right? You know, mom and dad say, hey, you need to do community service. You want to get into a good college. You have to have reasons. But you can't say it for existential reasons as to why you should help out, why you should become an Eagle Scout, why you should help people across the street. Why, 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 why? Because that's what people do. These are the inevitable questions of saying, maybe there is no truth. Maybe there is no significance. Now, on the day of John, certain schools grew up to give answers. And they had names, right? The first were the Epicureans. And the Epicureans said, man, there are no answers. There's no truth. We can't make sense. There's no significance. Just, man, just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow may never come. There's no significance. Just make the most of it. It's Cancun all the time, right? It's it's, uh, Jerusalem, Cancun. Just live it up. Who cares? Have that communion wine and just, that's it, man. And the other school was the Stoics. Right? And their philosophy is called Stoicism. 
And they said, okay, you're right. We, can't, we don't have answers. We don't have answers, but we need to come up with answers. We need to, to formulate uh, uh, rules for living so that life is livable. So be moral, be strong, be generous, be good. You know, live that way. Otherwise, the world would be an intolerable place to live. So fabricate. You know, we, we don't know the walls, so we'll just put up partitions. We'll try and figure out what's there so we can kind of live in it and we can like, at least make the most of it. There are no answers, but let's live like there are. <clears throat> well, my best friend um, from first grade to 12th grade, some of you may know him, so I won't use his name, um, is not a Christian. Um, uh, actually, far from it. And when we were pretty inseparable until about 12th grade, and we went completely opposite directions in college. And I went to Moody, and um, I prayed for him for a long time. And we, um, about junior year of college, senior year of college, one of our friends got married. I came home, and I finally had the conversation I wanted to have with him, where I was able to present the gospel. And he was pretty combative, very smart. And I remember saying, what do you do with Christ? And where is your significance? I had this almost exact same conversation with him. And he went to the school of Stoicism. He said, man, I can't make sense of this world, but we're all on this rock together and we've got to make the most of it that we can. And that was it. He refused to have any more conversation with me. And it was, that was it. He went to the school of Stoicism to, to answer why he was living, what he was doing. He couldn't make sense of moral absolutes. We just, we create them to make the most sense. That's what we do. Now these two schools are actually very modern schools recent schools. The Epicureans and the Stoics, basically what we deal with, um, I deal with in the Triangle and Raleigh-Durham, Chapel Hill, but in Harrisburg, I mean, they've got to be just as prevalent. Unless you come to understand what John said, you have to come to one of those two conclusions. It's one of the reasons that religions can, can be such a div divisive topic. You don't talk about religion, right? In the office, in the workplace, the gym, wherever you're, you don't talk about religion. The Stoics and the Epicureans as different as they are, the Stoics, real moral, Epicureans love to party. They're actually uh, agreed on one thing. Don't think about the greatest answers in life of why am I here? What is my purpose? And the, religion, and the reason religion is divisive is that Stoicism and Epicureanism is how people deal with the fact that they have no answers. They don't want to be reminded. It's impolite to remind me that I don't have any real answer or reason to get up in the morning. I don't. I don't have any real meaningful answer to get up and that I don't have any real way to decide what's right and wrong, what's good and what's inhumane. I don't want to be told about that. Um, Tim Keller uh, gives an illustration uh, about Woody Allen. Woody Allen's movie, Crimes and Misdemeanors, maybe I haven't seen it, but it gives a great answer, right? He gives, you a, he gives a stoic answer at the end of the movie where the, lead, the protagonist in the movie says, Look, there are no answers to these bigger questions, but what you have to do is get meaning from life, living day to day, and just derive pleasure from work and family and live in that. That's it. That's the answer to life. Stoicism. You do that all the time. So what is he saying? He says, don't remind yourself all the time that there are no answers. Instead, walk in Central Park, smell the flowers, take a boat ride, hug a child. That's how thoughtful people deal with the fact that there are no real answers. It sounds thoughtful and courageous, but it's the philosophical equivalent of the ostrich sticking his head in the sand. I can't make sense. Just don't think about it. Just live a life of some sort of meaning, but don't think about it too much. 
Jacques Minot, a molecular biologist who won the Nobel Prize, said, look, there are no answers. The universe was not pregnant with life, nor the biosphere with man. Our number came up at the Monte Carlo game. Is it any wonder that, like the person who is just one of millions at the casino, we feel strange and a little unreal? C.S. Lewis responds to this. He says, yeah, there are no answers, right? We're just supposed to, to, to walk, hug a child, feed the homeless, be strong. He talks about the ostrich approach and says, just bear with me, it, it, it take about a minute to read. He says, begin by supposing that nature is all that exists. Let us suppose that nothing has ever existed or ever will exist except the meaningless place of atoms in space and time that by a series of hundred chances, it has produced things like ourselves. Well, what then? You can't be in love with a girl if you know that all the beauties of her person and character are a momentary and accidental pattern produced by the collision of atoms. You may still in the lowest sense try to have a good time, but insofar as it becomes very good, but just insofar as it ever threatens to push you on from cold sensuality into real warmth and enthusiasm and joy, so far will you be forced to feel the hopelessness and disharmony between your own emotions and the universe in which you think you really live. You see, you, you go out there and hug a child and love people, but reality breaks in. It says, wait a minute. I start to have a good time and then reality breaks in. I, I, can I live my life by constantly repressing that there are no answers? There is no logos. You got something that Lewis is talking about, Woody Allen is talking about, and you have an impossible balancing act that Lewis is talking about. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, my favorite writers, and um, he was, someone was on NPR the other week talking about him. I like listening to NPR. But um, I was glad they were talking about Schaeffer, and what the thing, one of the things that Schaeffer said was, take Christianity on the offensive. Why? Because Christianity is one of those things you can't disprove. You, can't, you cannot disprove Christianity. You can't prove it, but you can't disprove it. And if you push on some of the other religions and philosophies, they'll all crumble. Why? Because there is a philosophy that might make sense, and there's a reality that everybody lives in, and they can't coincide. No one can live in a purely mathematical, philosophical world. No one can live in a philosophical world where there's created moralism. You can't do it. Someone who says there's no right and wrong if you say, hey man, if your wife cheated on you, is there right and wrong? Says, well, don't do that, please. Why? Because there is right and wrong. You can't live in a philosophical world. Reality creeps in. And Christianity is one of the few things that you can actually live in and it makes sense. Called it tearing the roof off the house. Ask questions. Why? Why do you think that's to be true? Why? They can't live in it. Non-Christian people cannot live in their philosophical, idealistic world. So this is not just a problem the Greeks have, it's a problem we all have. And therefore John's statement bursts into our consciousness as big a bombshell as it did then. Well, what John says is Jesus Christ is the Word, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He came down. What John is saying is there is a logos, there is a reason, there is significance, but it's not an abstraction, it's a person. It's a person. It is a person to be known, a person to be served, and a person to be loved. The Logos is not a, a bunch of abstract and absolute principles, but it is infinitely more. 
God himself has punched a hole in the roof of the world and has climbed in. And you cannot just know about the Logos. It's not just some philosophical principle. Rather, what John is saying is Christianity answers the philosophical questions. It is not a philosophy. Instead, it is a comprehensive thing that covers all bases and covers all aspects of life. It's a dynamic, that power that covers all parts and serves uh, all the depths of life. And John says, if you know him, he will fill you. If you serve him, he'll fill your mind and heart and all your senses. Something so much more than an abstract philosophy is Jesus Christ. And John says, come, know the one who is the truth. Come, know the one who is the significance. Come, here's the person that can be your alpha and omega. He is your logos. Or is he your logos? Is he your priority point? Is he the one that in your life, he is the reference for everything out, your point, your point of reference for all your decisions? Here's a good question to ask yourself. Is living for his honor and glory your greatest honor and pleasure? Because you might agree with me. You might say, man, he is the truth. But is your life, we, uh, at my church, at the Summit Church, we say there's beliefs and then there's functional beliefs. And functional beliefs tell what you really believe. Is, is living for his honor and glory your greatest honor and pleasure? You need to ask yourself. You need to self-diagnose. It's not enough to just come here and agree with me. This isn't a political rally where you come, you agree, it's a great speaker, then you go home and you live contrary. Is he what you're living for? Is he the highest priority of your life? And if he isn't, then you have to manufacture your own logos, right? And that's a hard thing to do. So you ask yourself, what is my logos? What's my significance? You start to ask yourself, well, what drives you? What drives me? What gets me up in the morning? Is it being a mom, getting to work? What drives me? My grandchildren? Is it retirement? Is it the fact that I have debt? What drives me? Is it your image? Is it your beauty? That'll fade. Is it a couple of very personal relationships, be it professional or romantic? Eventually you'll be bitter that they can't fulfill you in the way you wish they could. It's like a drug addict that wants more and more and more and deep down resents the fact that they're an addict. They hate it. Because those people, human beings, you're putting all that in, all that hope. It doesn't matter what your logos is, it'll fade. Um, there was a man years ago who was on a fast track of career success. He's a young protege, a prodigy um, in a career. He's at the top of his profession, and he, and he tells a story. He said, in his profession, there was a man who's 20, 30 years his senior. He was sharp. He had accomplished everything. He was what everyone looked at as the father of this career. He was a model, a great model. And this older man, this mature model of a man, this hero, came to the younger man's house on, on, uh, one day and said, I just need a place to go and to think. I need to get away. Can I stay here in your apartment? Well, this was, this was in Britain. And he walked down in and he sat in front of the fire and he stared at the fire without a word for two hours. The young man realized what was happening. So the older man had loved a woman and she had just died. This man had been in love in, in, in such a way that it, 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 it crushed him when she died. And the young man said, as I watched my model, the, every, the idol of everything I wanted to be stare into the fire, I suddenly realized 
he had no answers to the really only important questions in life. And what are those important questions? What am I doing this weekend? What am I doing with the money in my bank account? Or how do I deal with death? What am I doing in my life? What is it all for? Young man said, I didn't really know what was going on in his heart, but I suddenly realized the shallowness of my own life. The total emptiness of my life was revealed. If you try to manufacture any other type of logos besides the one that John puts forth as the rationale for your life, you absolutely for sure will be staring at the fire. Christ is the only one that can leave you satisfied and hopeful. Only one. Everything else will leave you at the fire. So, Jesus Christ is the rationale for life. And Jesus Christ is also the authority of life here. So Jesus Christ isn't just the logos, meaning he is the goal for your life, but he's also the guide of your life. He should be, right? So we, we, in theological terms, we, we say he's not just your savior, but he's also to be your Lord. All right, I just take a second. Uh, so it's not just a matter of saying, man, just pray, ask him in your heart, man, he saved you from your sins. That's not, that's not where it ends. He's also to be your Lord, your master, as we say, right? And so what makes him happy should make you happy, you know? So it's uh, in a relationship where you're dating somebody and you're like, man, she or he like this thing. I, I love them. I want to do this thing for them, right? Well, so much more is it to be with God. But yet we say, when I, it, we see it so much as a, a savior mentality where it's just get out of jail free card. It's a monopoly game, right? He died for me, get out of jail free card. I got it. I believed, I prayed, thank you. And that's not right. That, that's not at all what God says, right? God or Jesus is always talking about take up your cross and follow me right? You're to be my servants. It's like 80% of what he says is about people following him, not just believing on his death for salvation. It's about being a Christ follower. And that means that he is your Lord. So he's not just a, a goal to get you out. Okay? He's not a, that, that reduces him to a lucky rabbit's foot. Man, God, thank you. I'm so glad 30 years ago I prayed this prayer. Man, probably... What, what, functionally, what you're saying with your life is, I never really believed. That was great. I'm glad I checked the box. But functionally, I never really believed. I mean, that's what you're really saying. So, when John calls him the word, he's not only talking about him being the answer to the philosophical issue, but he's also saying Jesus is the truth. The word means he is the truth. He reveals real truth about how we should live, who we are. But when Jesus was transfigured on the, on the, uh, uh, on the mountain, and Peter and James and John are watching him be transfigured. His father says, right, this is my beloved son. And King James, hear ye him, right? Hear ye him. This is my son. Christianity is not just some God consciousness, right? Deepak Chopra is this really popular writer who talks about things that are like, what, what is he saying? And it's metaphysics and the meta being and, the, and it's like there's a God consciousness. And people buy into this. It's the like Eastern mysticism. But Christ has come. It's a relationship where you communicate truth. And, and that means by what Jesus did and what he has done and what he said gives a body of truth to guide us. He is our authority of life for living. Uh, around um, 
Chicago, Milwaukee, uh, even in the Raleigh-Durham area, um, I, I found there's basically two approaches uh, to truth. Okay, there's a scientific approach, not a scientific, a scientific. And, um, and what that says is everything is basically made of atoms and molecules anyway. It sounds eerily similar to scientific, but Christians can be very scientific, so it's not, it's scientific. Um, is basically made of atoms and molecules anyway. And because of empirical facts, there is no truth. There's no way to empirically have evidence of real existential truth. There's nobody to tell you right and wrong. There is no morality. There are no answers for the big questions, right? I went to um, a Richard Dawkins rally uh, at Duke University about two years ago, and it was like really eerie how it's like, man, if we lived in the reality that there is no truth It'd be a very scary world, very scary world. And we have our old friend Bertrand Russell, who was uh, a very prominent atheist about 100 years ago, who says, man is the product of the accidental collocation of atoms, and all human genius will someday die in the vast death of our solar system. That's a really hopeful saying, right? It's very hopeful. There are no facts, it's truth, right? Scientific. Well, prove it to me. That House, the TV show, he was really scientific. Oh, there's no truth. You can't really know, except that you can know there is no God. Like, that's the one thing you can know. And, um, and so that I, I live, they say that, so that's what it is. I'm scientific, right? They say they're scientific, but they're scientific. But there's a second approach, and that is the new ageistic approach. And the new ageistic approach says, oh, there is truth. There is uh, a lot of truth. The truth is that we are all gods. We are, that you look inside yourselves and you come to realize your own divinity, your own greatness, your own power, right? So they don't actually come out and say we're our own gods, but essentially that's what they're saying. Um, Oprah is new ageistic in this, right? It's um, self-help books uh, tend to all be, anyone who says, oh, look, at, just dig deeper inside yourself. All these, a lot of these, um, what are these? Uh, um, inspirational quotes, inspirational things all come back as being new ageistic. Look within yourself. You know, or, or, it just, he doesn't make me happy. She doesn't make me happy. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means deep down, I know what's right and wrong because I'm happy and deep within myself. I'm not being true to myself, right? That's a new ageistic comment people make. I'm not being true to myself. Well, what does that mean? Well, what you're really saying is truth is within myself. I'm denying who I really am. I'm denying the divinity within me. And therefore, I got to make that right. You know, uh, um, all, oh, man, I, I don't want to, uh, all counseling that's not biblical counseling is basically this, to some degree. You know, I, I, I think counseling is a wonderful thing. But people go to couples counseling, singles counseling, unless it's for like a, a medical reason that you need something, all secular counseling is new ageistic to some degree or another. I, I don't know how to tell you that, but it is. And if you're going to counseling and it's not a biblical gospel counselor, you're just getting new age approach saying either, either they're saying, how'd you feel about that? Trying to get deeper within yourself, right? Or they're guiding you to their inner approach to themselves. That's it. At the bottom line of secular counseling, it is deeper within myself or it's deeper within myself. I'm going to tell you how it is. Find it or I'll tell you. That's it. It's, that's new age approach, and, um, and, and it's evil. It's evil. So 
And that's popular. All the self-help books, man, burn them because they're not true. They're not gospel. They point you to yourself. And as different as those two views are, scientific and new age, ageistic, as much as they yell and scream at each other, one says, uh, you know, I'm scientific. I, I come with, with facts. You come with weird ideas. The other says, no, you don't live in a world you can really live in. And there's scorn. They're basically saying the same thing. What is that? They're basically saying no matter what kind of truth you've got, when you get up in the morning, there's nobody to obey but me. Nobody to obey but me. I don't have a body of truth that I must submit my body and mind to. There isn't a body of truth outside of me that exists in spite of how my inner consciousness is. There's nobody I have to submit to. Nobody I have to obey. I am my own master. I'm my own master. And so at the end of the day, I wake up and I say, it's deeper within myself. Why? I, I just, I'm, I, I'm not true to myself. And therefore, what is true to myself? I write my own stuff down. You don't obey anybody. You gotta, you gotta know you better. That's the whole point. It's scientific says there's no truth outside. I have to figure out what makes the most sense to my mind, right? So one might be a more emotional, right, personal. The other might be just more rational, but both of them start with the same person. I make my own laws. Leonard Bernstein, uh, when talking about Beethoven's fifth said, Beethoven leaves us with the feeling that something is right in the world, that something checks throughout, something that follows its own laws consistently, something that we can trust that will never let us down. Now, if you ask Leonard Bernstein, you say, do you believe that God has revealed his truth in Jesus Christ? And therefore, God has revealed his truth in actual words and actual deeds, the body of truth that is completely consistent and checks throughout and can never let you down. What do you think he'd say? He'd probably say, no. But his heart would still yearn for that to say yes. What possible explanation could there be that we would yearn for a God who speaks real words to us and gives us real truth. What's the possibility of that? I mean, the secular world says it's a crutch, but why is people who deny God and want nothing to do with God, do we always come back to wanting a God? It doesn't make any sense. The only possible explanation I could think that's plausible is that there really is one. Why would we want one? Where would that even come from within us as Darwinian naturalists would have us believe? Why would we create one? You know, we don't, I mean, atheists would say it was a crush to make sense of lightning and thunder and famine, but there's something much deeper why we want a God. We want someone to actually love us and care for us and know us, not just answers. Why would we have that desire? Why is it that no real relationship can satisfy us and there's something deeper, a bigger whole? You know, it's actually a really threatening idea to just create a God. A truthless world is unbearable. Why? Why is a truthless world unbearable? Because it's not a truthless world. And there's another way to put it. Jesus Christ is the author. But we were told in verse 3, through him, uh, in chapter 1, through him all things were made. Without, nothing, without him, nothing was made that was made. Right? He's the author. That's why he can speak with authority. That's why he should be your Lord and master. Not just because he bought you on the cross, but he authored you. Now, a lot of you at one point were students. Um, at some point or another, you probably took a literature class. I remember sitting in 11th grade English at Cumberland Valley, and we sat around, we talked about Robert Frost's poem, Road Less Traveled. And everyone had this idea 
Um, what does it mean? What does it mean to, to his road less traveled? Is it a career move? Is it uh, a relationship? Should he made, was, maybe it was actually a, a different road home. Maybe that's what he was talking about. And we sit around and I remember, uh, I remember uh, the, the teacher in the class, I asked, well, um, you know, what if he says what it is? And he said, well, that, he doesn't get that right anymore. Once he wrote it, it's up for us to interpret however we want. I'm thinking like, that doesn't make any sense for anything if you apply that. Um, and so a bunch of people just sit around in a class, and no matter how crazy the idea is, the teacher really, except for that class, can only say, oh, okay, because everyone's opinion is of equal authority. Okay, but what happens if, if Robert Frost walks into that class, walks in the door, walks up front, says, you know what, I wrote that 100 years ago. I wrote that poem. Let me tell you what it really meant. It really meant I was thinking about a job, and man, that's all it really was. And it's end of discussion. Why? Because he wrote it. The word authority comes from the word author, right? So when the author speaks, nobody can say anything. My teacher couldn't say, no, you didn't, Robert. You didn't believe that. That's not what you said. He can't say that. He said, no, I was sitting there. Were you there? No, I was there. I wrote it. I know. Boom, that's it. Jesus Christ is the author of your life. You know, who are you going to believe? Uh, one of the questions we, we debate down in, in Raleigh Durham is, uh, how do you decide how to use your sexual capacity? Are you going to be the one who says, no one has the right to tell me what to do with my body but me? I'm the one. I decide. The, the premise that is smuggled in there is that it, it is really indefensible. The only person that can speak to you authoritatively would be your author. That's it. He's the only one who can tell you what a person is, what your body's for, what's going on. Do you make yourself... You know, we, we barely have an understanding, not even, of a soul and of your, your body. And, and they're really kind of mysteries in a lot of ways to us. Philosophically, we, we debate around the idea of an existence of a soul. We don't really know. Barely understand. And the only person that can, and everyone has an opinion, but your opinion is just like every other one in that poetry room. Every other one. And the author walks in and says, I built the body. I built sex. I invented it. Here's how to use it. And at that point, you either submit or you just say, I'm just one of the kids in the room, just shooting the bull. My opinion is as good as yours. And that's what we do. He's the author of life and we submit to his truth. That's it. End of discussion. So may, someone may be sitting here today and said, I, I don't believe this. You know, why do, why do I need a personal God who reveals truth to you? Why do I need that? Because there is one. That's why. Jesus is the rationale for life. Jesus is the authority of life. Some of you are here and believe everything I've said, and yet Jesus isn't really the rationale of your life. You've got other logoi, which is the plural Greek for logos, other significances in your life purposes. There are other things driving you, other things that are important, and as a result, you can't agree with verse 4, when John says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Until you believe he is the rationale for life, and make him the reason you get up and put, um, put the place he, he needs to be. Give him the authority that he is due. Until that happens, my, my friends, you're not going to have the life that is the light of men. You will not have that. It comes from people that are realizing their potential, that have Christ in the center of their lives. Now, C.S. Lewis said, um, I mean, I'm 
I'm having trouble remembering it, but it's something in the essence that Jesus Christ isn't something that just makes sense. It is the sun by which I see everything. It's a paradigm shifter. We compartmentalize Christianity, but Christianity isn't just a part of your life. It is your life. It is a lens by which you see everything, right? It informs the way I go to the gym, the way I eat, the way I'm in relationships, the way I'm in everything. You are a worshiper. You are a, a, a person created by God to be in a relationship with God. So that's not just a part of your life. That is your life. That's your identity now. And by that, now you make sense of everything else. The problem is we compartmentalize. We say, well, I'm this, I'm this, I'm this. I'm also a Christian. No, you're a Christian who does these other things. You're to be. It makes sense. That's why there's a whole theology for understanding life, work, business, relationships, people. Christianity is everything. It's not a box. It's not a check. It's not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He is to be your Lord. And make him your king. You'll find out what you're built for. And maybe there are other people here saying, I wish, I, I mean, I see what you're saying and it's fascinating. I wish I could believe it, but I don't. How oh, well, what, what, what can I do about that? And the answer is that there's a lot. Jesus is the prophet to end all prophets. He's not like Buddha. He's not like Muhammad. He's not like Karl Marx because he's still alive. So it's just a prophet that brings the truth. He is the truth. You know, his his voice is the truth. He spoke to Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead. And he says, come forth, Lazarus. And Lazarus heard him. Why? Because Jesus' voice is the truth. He can speak his truth down into the deadest and numbest of hearts that is dead and cause it to beat like Lazarus. And spiritually, he can do that to anyone. He can inflame it with beauty and truth. And so what you need to do is say, I, I'd like to believe it. You can say, I have no excuse. I'm coming to you. I'm going to look at your truth. I'm going to hear you. I'm going to see you. I see, O oh Lord, that you climb the tree. Man stole the fruit, but you climb the tree. Tree of life for everybody but myself. I give you myself. Come on in. Be my truth. He hears that, and he will hear that and respond. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus is the rationale for life. Everything else apart from Christ. Let's keep leaving you at the fire without answers. It's the truth. That's why, that's why you go and you read self-help books to begin with. Because you come to the end of your rope, tragedy happened, so you almost lost a job, lost a loved one. Something happened. 9-11 happened. Something happened and you came into church. You're like, I got to get back on it. Something that you, some logoi was shaken and you came to the fire, the fire oftentimes is church. And then you get, when you finally, something else in your life starts to lead it, then you go back out. And they say, well, I can fit church in sometimes. Everything eventually will be shaken. Everything. Christ is the only one at the end of the day who can fill you and give you the answers because he is the significance. He is the one who is the Lord who has authority over your life. He can give you meaning to your life, and you should. Let's pray. It's only Father, Lord, I, I thank you for your son who you sent down as a baby, born here, Lord, and was raised and lived as one of us. Humbling that must have been to be weighted on hand and foot to glory 
all the angels worshiping and to be born into a manger. To live a life of relative insignificance by way of human standards. And then you lived a short life in your ministry and were slain by us. And yet, as a lamb, you went willingly. God, that has to be significant. That has to mean something to us. Can't just be an old story. God, I pray that you soften our hearts, the Holy Spirit, that we see the cross and we see a living Savior, not just one that was slain, but a Savior that was raised, that is yearning to see us face to face. Let us be like Paul, saying we are running the race, and yet we yearn to see you. Let us not be so attached to things of this world, whether materialistic, relational, whatever it is, achievement, that the most important thing is to say, man, I just want to hear you say, well done, thy good and faithful servant. To see you, let that be our significance. Let you be our significance, our rationality, our authority, our Lord. Give us a good week, Lord. I pray that the uh, Holy Spirit works in us this week so that there's a, a confession of sin, of, of things, that there's a logos that has been sinful, that needs to be broken, it needs to be torn down. It's leading us helpless. We're fueling a fire of death. God, so I just pray that, that there's a confession, that you tear that down in 2 Corinthians 9, that, man, in our weakness, your grace is more than enough. It is sufficient for us that we can actually be healed in you through our confession of sin to brothers and sisters here in this church and to you. Lord, I pray all these things. I pray that we have a great week. I pray, Lord, that we, we are out and we are catching this, the, the fruit of people who are, that you're softening their hearts and we are near them, Lord, and we can share the gospel with them. Show them the significance that they too can have, their purpose for life. I pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.